Welcome to Culture Drop, where we explore below the surface and find the best music, art, literature, and film. Today we continue with our series of Clash podcasts. This is episode three. I was speaking to William Devitt, author, cultural critic, and Clash expert. Today we're going to talk about The Clash's London Calling Tour of 1979, some of the bands that opened up for The Clash during that tour, including the David Johansson band, dig a little bit deeper into the influences of The Clash. Now on to the podcast. said 19th to 20, September, 21st of September. What's the difference between the two dates? No, I saw them on the 12th of September. Okay. This is the 21st. This is where false master is based. Okay, there's a bootleg. Yeah, it's, it was a national broadcast. From where? W N E W in New York City. Oh, okay. Uh, at the Ritz. And you think, which performance is better? Because you've heard both. They played two nights here. Talk about the one, well, obviously the one I saw. Yeah, you were there. Uh, no, this is, there's different venues. This is a ballroom. And this is, you know, close night. The one I have of the show I was at, well, you've heard it. Uh, you've got it. Yeah, it's a, a civic center, you know. It's been a while since I heard it, but I remember it sounding great. Yeah, it's, it's an audience recording. It's a real good audience recording. But this it's, is amazing if you think about it. This is 1979. What kind of equipment you brought in there? Yeah, it sounds like somebody might have had like a real professional recording, something like that, maybe. You know, by 1979 standards. Uh, yeah, I mean, something like this obviously didn't exist in 1979. Right. But they had those cassette recorders, you know, with the push button things. I wonder if it was one of those. Oh, or no, it'd be something more professional. Something a little bit more. I mean, it's the ambience, it's a big, echoey, you know, the drums, like I remember John Bream writing in his review, I still have, the next day, in the Star Tribune, right? He's, uh, he's just the Minneapolis Star back then, the Tribune, separate. Right, that, right, yeah. And, stuff. and uh, saying, Topper Eden's, he gave a kind of a lukewarm review of the yeah. gig, saying, intriguing, but hardly transcendental. Trans- really? But he, he said, didn't get it. Oh, he liked them. He was yeah, a fan from the get-go. They didn't but get how transformative the Yeah, I, what I've heard is that people thought about the St. Paul gig is that Joe was trying too hard to oh. be punk rock, Mike. Oh, punk rock. You know, he 
smashes guitar, smashing a, you know, an orange amp, you know, those beautiful orange amps. And supposedly bit Paul on the arm. Well, I didn't see this. I, well, he's on the outside of the stage. I've got a mix microphone. But, um, but he wrote, John Bream wrote in his review, Topper's drums, drumming was uh, hard-working and orchestral. Hmm. And by God, it was. It's like there's a king up there on the throne dictating. Yeah. Like playing traffic cop, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, and it was a really good sound. You can even tell from the, you know, you know lo-fi bootleg. Right. Well, that's yeah, yeah, Joe's he's trying real hard. I'm surprised that so many of you want to see it here in the Midwest, want to see us. I don't mean to knock you all, but I get back to the hotel, I turn on the radio. He's got like the Eagles. It's the Eagle and the Steely Dan. Why turn to country and western? Before London Calling starts. Right. Yeah. I just remember that that show, you know, starting because we worked our way with the undertones. We were way up high. So it's, you know, stage, stage right. And then when Johansson came on, we worked ourselves down because they had half of the Civic Center um, curtained off. Oh, okay. So it was only like seated like 2,000 people for that event um, because they knew it wasn't going to you know, be a sellout or whatever. Yeah, it's pretty small enough. Right, that's a big location for a band of their stature. Right. Um, at the time. Not that well known in the U.S. Right. No hits. Because after Johansson's set ended, uh, and we were still pretty much sitting, me and Matt, you know, yeah, we'd get up and rock around a little bit, but uh, well, whatever. And then behind us, we hear these guys talking as the music comes on, uh, and before the flash come on. And look, turn around, these two fearsome looking biker dudes, right? And they're talking real loud in there, Northeast Minneapolis. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know that Dallas could have wiped up the floor with the pistols. It's just so funny hearing these hard-ass, hard scary-looking bikers, clearly, like, colors on everything, talking about the majesty of the dolls. Yeah. And clearly they heard Dressing the pistols. Like and obviously the pistols got, you know, their whole attack from the dolls. You know, Steve Jones, you know, guitar tone, his attack, everything. Paul Cook's, you know, from Jerry Nolan's drumming. That was their, their obvious, you know, influence. Yeah. The most obvious influence. And, yeah, it was just great. You were hearing these guys talk about, you know, that way. And then, anyway, we worked ourselves down into the, onto the floor. Because that was a contractual thing with The Clash. Is that they had to have open air, open floor dancing. Okay. And it... It was a big problem with Epic Records, with CVS, you know, the American subsidiary of CVS Records. They wanted to feed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, the other thing we haven't discussed about the Clash is 
they would take all comers after the show. And they wanted to talk to the fans. That's that's the story. Um, is yeah, they just let people in backstage and back at the hotel. You know, sneak them in through the window or whatever yeah. it is. Uh, I love that about that band. Yeah. For some bands, Charlie Watts and the Clash, it was about the music. But my general sense was Joe was kind of a family guy at the end. Oh, I mean, dead. he had daughters. He had a oh, yeah, woman yeah. who loved him. Yeah, my, he was walking his dogs in the country. That's the country house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my, he would still go out into the city and party for days on end. Oh, he really got he, into acid and, and, and perhaps that's why he died, but. No, the the coroner's report was had a heart condition. It was a congenital heart condition, a birth from birth. Right, but he exacerbated it by staying out for for nights on end. Maybe I don't know. That's not what the coroner said. But the coroner didn't approach that from a rock and roll point of view. But what Mick said about it, you know, of course, he said, "Hey, the guy lived on pure heart alone, yeah. literally, not just poetically." Right. Um, yeah, metaphorically. maybe. Metaphorically. Well, apparently, what the coroner's report was that he shouldn't have lived past the age of one. Yeah. With this, he was a very rare... He's missing a valve. Some, yeah. Something like that, you know. Wow. Um, this is a guy who ran, you know, the London Marathon at least once, the Paris Marathon at least right. once. He may have cheated on the Paris Marathon, but... Uh, yeah, that's when he went missing. Yeah. But there's photos of him and Gabby doing it. But yeah. a lot of people think he, you know, scooted yeah, around. Yeah. But for the London one, he was sponsored. He was sponsored by, I don't know, Triumph for, uh, you know, motorcycles. You know, you know, with a number and everything. Wow. So he actually ran 26 miles, you know. Um, with supposedly no training. Um, and supposedly not a bad time, too. Something like, you know, under five hours. Wow. Which, that's not bad for, especially for some, And supposedly having drunk something like 10 pints the night before. and telling the, the myth, always tell the myth. Is that John Ford or John Houston? John I don't know. Like that. You're right, exactly, you know. Always tell the myth, you know. Uh, and post-Clash, Joe did some great solo albums. He did that global music, which was informed a lot by San Mista. Mescaleros were great. Mescaleros were great. great band. Yeah. Paul did Havana 3 a.m., yeah, I was heard it like good stuff. I had the cassette. I listened to it maybe three, four times. I just can't remember anything about it. It's Gary Myrickie's guitar playing. He had a lot of delay and a lot of slapback on it and a lot of rockabilly riffs. But Topper took a break from drumming and eventually got back into it. Yeah, he did one solo album, uh, Waking Up. Uh, with uh, He drummed and it was, I think, forget Norman Watroy from the Blockheads and Mickey Gallagher on keyboards and I think one of the singers from his uh, old soul band, Free Clash soul band. Uh, not real remarkable. But. And then Mick did 
some great DAD albums, some Saturn Midland DAD 2 albums. Carbon Silicon has some great stuff, which we saw. Oh, I think there was... Mick I, and I, Paul yeah. did the Gorillas thing. Um, Mick got involved heavily in the Clash reissues. What do they call that? That box set? Oh, uh, sound system. Sound system. Yeah. That was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. He's kind of like the Jimmy Page, the muso of the group, like Jimmy Page. Like, he oversaw that. Yeah. I just think of, like, even Big Audio Dynamite. I mean, you know, God bless Don Letts. But I just think of it all as, like, Mick Jones. You know, Carbon Silicon. Mick Jones solo. Yeah. He's just, he's like Steve Van Zandt. You know, he's just like, I'm a band guy. I don't want to be Mick Jones. Those guys were culturally tuned in enough to know what samples they wanted to put in their music. Mick's a pretty impressive guy. He's even more funny when you actually like, hear him talk. Too bad when you were over there, because you've been, been to the UK in the last couple of years a couple of times, like yeah. with Dave and whatnot. But it was like a pop-up thing. Um, and it's like all his oh, memorabilia, right, right, right. his books, right. his DVDs. And that's not around anymore. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he still has it in storage yeah, somewhere. But it's not. No, I don't think it's an ongoing you know, thing. But it was within the last you know, 10, 12 years, yeah, yeah. at least in the That's UK. That's right, I remember seeing videos about that. Yeah, yeah, it looks like you know, his comic books and his, you know, like everything. It's like yeah. Mick Jones. Yeah, all his influences. Ren renaissance spot. man, pop culture renaissance yeah. man. Um, but, you know, just his books and stuff, like you know, history and, you know, Churchill's, you know, six-volume, uh, you know, biography, autobiography. And, like, dudes were really into stuff. Yeah. There's a... In the interview with David Johansson, um, David Fricky, you know, Rolling Stone right. music editor, interviewing him on a DVD for their reunion album after the, uh, One Day It Will Please Us. Even This. It Will Please Us to Remember Even This is the name of their... Who's the reunion album? The New York Dolls. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, no, I like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's really great. It doesn't sound like the Dolls. Yeah. Johansson saw them. Yeah. Anyway, the interview on the bonus disc. And he's saying, well, what was the difference between, you know, you you guys and, like, the punk bands that came later that you're so heavily identified with, you know, the Pistols? And he doesn't mention the Clash, but uh, uh, you can tell David's talking about the Clash. But unlike the Pistols, he said, well, you know, we were. We just, we were into stuff. We, we liked stuff. We weren't talking about shit that we didn't like so much. Yeah. We were just, we were into stuff. We wanted to be into stuff. He just keeps saying, you know, David's a really you know, bright dude. Oh, yeah. But, you know, he, he's all gruff in you know, New York City. And, and it's like, bing, there you got it. That's the clash. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Culture Drop podcast. Please join us next time when we continue our conversation with William Devitt about the music of The Clash.